I've been brought in, Frank, as a fucking my association. <laughs> to be abused by some fucking pussies. It makes a change. That's Listen, I would me. take the back of my hand to him and his brother and his full family and his blowjob trainer as well, <laughs> BJ Flores. Blowjob. Blowjob Flores. They're not pikers. And when Tommy knocks him into next week, they knock his brother into next week. You'll find out, boy. Crying over you. You can't even see my eyes, old man. Get the glasses off, you idiot. I can see good enough. Suck sleep. my dick. Suck my <laughs> dick. <laughs> you ain't got a fucking dick to suck. You've got a gas, not a dick. Tommy, <laughs> Tommy, you were trying to say something there. You were trying to say something. All I want... Oh, my God. What I wanted to say is we're for a criteria experiment. What it is this? Good when this fight, smash that dickhead. When this fight, exactly. See what you are. So keep it. Let's make it official. Let's make it official. Oh, 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 calm down, boys. Let's make the. Hey guys, welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where. No one told John Fury that the that the cameras were rolling and it was live. Oh my, oh my god, that was that was a disaster, wasn't it? But I'm going to come back to that later. What I wanted to do actually was this is a bit of an odds and sods type of show, I guess, because there are a few things to touch, and I haven't even touched on the you know the Crawford Porter thing, which I should do, and obviously the the John Fury Jake Paul debacle. But I wanted to sort of do like an epilogue of of the weekend, you know, everyone's had a few days to process what's happened. And just to give that kind of layer of context, because I think I gave you three three episodes of a lot of detail, which some people love, but sometimes you need a context in which to wrap all of these things over and, you know, not help it make sense, but kind of tie it up in a neat little bow. So I think for, for the last three days, if nothing else, I've, I've enjoyed watching... You know, the, the Dan Aziz London tour with the British title now. It's nothing like Denzel Bentley's tour, where of the 7.6 billion people on earth, I think I was the only person not to touch that British title. And I think, I think we all learned an important lesson from that. So number one, you know, less is definitely more. And number two, it's only a stepping stone. So what I can say in the intervening days since Dan won, his, his attitude's been spot on. Dan understands that this is just a stepping stone. And I always think when your mindset is beyond the thing you've just won, that's a powerful moment. Because there's some guys who will win the British title and go, this is all I ever wanted. But Dan, it's British, it's he might, you know what I mean? It's, let's unify with the winner of Lyndon Arthur versus Anthony Yard. Then let's go European, let's go world. Let's do it the traditional way. I know Porky would appreciate that one. But for me, here's one of the things I don't think a lot of fans understand why that win was so important for Dan. If we go back to 2015 and you had maybe 14, you had Craig Richards, Joshua Boatze, Dan Aziz, um, Andre Sterling. At that time, you'd have had Yilmaz as well, Yilmaz Mustafa. You'd have had Matthew Tinker. 
whichever 81 is which you've had at that time. There have been a few other guys floating around at 81, right? At light heavyweight in the amateurs. So this is a group like Umar's part, Umar Sadiq's part of that group as well. So this is a group of, of people that all know each other really well. You know, you're at each other's shows sometimes. Sometimes you're boxing on the same show. And so when Craig gets signed to Matchroom, the group are happy. But then it's like, oh, if Craig's gone to Matchroom, what am I going to do? I didn't mention that in the Yard. Yard's kind of part of that group, but Yard never did three three-minute rounds. So he was always the guy that people were waiting for. So then Yard gets signed as well. And you're like, oh, okay. Okay, what's next? And so it's the analogy I'd use is, it's like school football. You know, you, you keep picking. So if I've got first pick, I might pick the most skillful player or I might pick the hardest player, depending on where my head is at. And then the second player gets their pick. Once you've gone through most of the guys, you know, you're, you're, and you're still left, you're like, God, I hope I don't get picked last. That's how boxers feel. So you look at it and Craig gets signed, Yard gets signed, then the ABAs happen, John Dignam by 2016 becomes part of this picture. Josh does amazing things in the Olympics, so you know he's going to get signed. You know, Sterling is doing his thing on the small hall scene. Dan then goes, right, I need to turn pro. So Dan was kind of at the back of the pack. And so Dan gets to see all of this stuff happening. He's seeing everyone go ahead of him. And so as much as Dan is one of the gentlemen of British boxing, and as much as Dan is one of those connectors that everyone has a good word to say about and everyone's kind of connected to him one way or another, Dan knows in the back of his mind, I don't have the trinkets these guys do. I see these guys making moves, making money. You know, they're getting their little, little video clips made so they go on Sky Sports and they're on Eddie Hearns Live and all of these things are happening. And Dan hasn't got that. So... Yard's winning trinkets. You know Yard is headed to that world title with it when he won the WBO European. You so you're still watching that. Then Craig's doing his thing. Then Josh beats uh, I think he beats Liam Conroy for the British. And you're like, oh okay, guys are winning belts now. When is it my turn? And so Dan at this point is like, I need to get there, I need to get there. And it's not something he'd say publicly. But in Dan's mind, he's like these guys aren't that much better than me. And he's seeing Andre do his thing. And so he's like, I'm going to close this gap. And all this stuff is happening. And it's, it's the right stuff to happen. It's the right mindset to have. You know, guys have hit that light heavyweight scene like Kurt Garvey and dropped down again. And Dan's watching all of this happen. Going, when is it going to be my turn? So when Dan wins the British title, here's what it means. For the next year or so, he can be around these guys. He can be around Spider. He can be around Josh. He can be around Andre. He can be around all of these guys with his head held high going, see all that stuff you've done? I've done it too. And I did it with a better name. And it's not so much uh, I'm better than you. It's just I belong again. Just like, just like I did when we were amateurs, I belong again. I'm part of the group. And this happens a lot in boxing in different weight classes because these guys all come up together. You know, there, there, there are all of these kind of pockets of natural rivalries that, 
the public don't know about, but we'd love to see. Linus Adolfi, Jermaine Brown. You know, it's not a rivalry, but they've met before. And I know they'd love to do it again. At what weight? No idea. But they'd love to do it again. You know, it just when you go back in the day and you see some of them, like Amir Khan, Kel Brook. You know, Kel always thought he was as good as, if not better than Amir Khan. So when Khan's off winning an Olympic silver medal, Kel's like, what? When Khan's winning world titles, Kel's like, he ain't that much better than me. So when Kel won that IBF, remember how he was when people talked about Amir Khan. Kel's like, oh, okay, now I've got a world title too. I can talk my, my, my nonsense. I can talk my mess. That's really important for boxers. It really is. And you're going to see this when it comes to the heavyweights. Because Sky have a lad called Steve Robinson from the Northeast. And Steve seems like a lovely lad. Looks like Ivan Drago. Like 100%. They should have had him in Creed too. But the thing with Steve is there are guys that have beaten Steve in the amateurs who are confident they can beat Steve in the pros. And they'll probably come next year or the year after. And they'll be hunting for Steve. So if Steve starts winning stuff like area level English, they'll be like, no, 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 no. He ain't better than me. I need to win that stuff. Then I need to deal with him. And it's like this competitive rivalry that gives boxing its spice. And a handful of people understand this. The likes of your Carl Greaves will understand this because... They pick up on the, the energy and the gossip that happens in boxing. But you, generally, your, your kind of promoters and stuff, they don't get this. Your broadcasters don't get this. That's why we never see these fights happen. But if you did, if we built fights and cards and stories around these natural rivalries, fans would be more engaged and everyone would make more money. And that's one of the reasons why Dan winning on Saturday was really important because for a group of really, really talented guys, there was a fear that Dan might get cast adrift. And that would have been so unfair on a guy who was equally as talented as those guys. And winning that British title put him in that discussion. Same with Denzel Bentley because Denzel came from behind. When Denzel won that British, it put him in a certain level, at a certain level where he could sit and have a conversation with people. And you've got to acknowledge him as a, as a British champion. And so these things become important. So the Denzel Felix Cash thing becomes important because you go, oh, I wonder if those guys will meet further down the line. And that's why when people say, why should you get interested in the grassroots of boxing? It's for those, those little rivalries that pick up, those little pockets of tension between people. You know, I remember we had a, we had a kid called Mo, right, at Fitzroy Lodge. And he had tension with, I think it was Jesse Brandon up at Finchley. Three fights. After every fight, there was tension. The last one was like, yo, let's throw down in the changing rooms after the fight. Now, if those two guys turn pro, I'm pushing for them to fight. Mo Garib and Prince Patel. If anyone remembers the, the Facebook beef, it, it's still one of my favorite boxing stories because it was absolutely hilarious. So, so there's a conversation that happens on Facebook between Prince Patel and Mo Garib. So Prince Patel, you all know who Prince Patel is. Mo Garib was a young man. He boxed for, I'm trying to think, Dale Youth, 
Finchley. Uh, Dale Youth All-Stars Finchley Islington. Talented kid. Um, I wonder what he's doing now. Maybe uh, maybe that's a question for Ring Talk. But Mo Garib, really talented kid. Dedicated kid. You know, too obsessed with trying to box up Prince Nassim as opposed to boxing in a way that would win in fights. He would have done a lot more. But he's one of those guys that nearly got to 100 bouts as an amateur. So salute to him. So these guys are going back and forth on Facebook and it all seems quite lighthearted. Then it gets heated because these are two guys that don't back down. And it starts getting like quite serious now. And Prince Patel's like, listen, you know, I'm not the kind of guy to mess around with. You'll get battered. Mo Garib's like, I'll come and find you. Where, where are you? And a word of a lie. <laughs> so then you start getting the pictures and Prince Patel's like, I'm right here waiting. Mo Garib sends a picture of him getting into his car, going, I'm on my way. Mo Garib drives up to where Prince Patel was, takes a picture and goes, where are you? And like, it's that sort of thing where it's like, we're going to do this today. And I think they just got talked back from it, you know, sensible heads prevailed. But you get those sorts of things, but Prince Patel's kind of bantam, super bantam right now. Mo Garib is lightweight slash super feather. So the weights don't make sense for them to fight, which is a shame. But it's those little rivalries that start to pick up. You know, a natural one for Prince Patel would have been Walid Dean, but he didn't quite crack it as a pro. They tried to make it with Charlie Edwards, didn't quite work. You know, but it's about how these guys are 10 years from now at the weddings, at the christenings, at the Xboxes dinners, at the fight cards, you know, in the hotel before the fight. The bragging starts. You did this. I did this to you. I won this belt before you. I beat a better guy to get the belt. You know, when I wanted to fight you, you died. All of that stuff is important. So when you see these guys winning stuff like the British belt or the Commonwealth belt or the, even the Southern area belt, yes, they do it for you, the fans, but they also do it for those moments when they're retired and they can say, no, 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 I did this to you. And I think I've touched on this before. If you want to know how real rivalries are, if you ever bump into Keith Bristol, just ask him what he feels about fighting Dennis Andrews. I think those guys fought three times. Dennis Andrews won all three. But Keith will tell you that he'll beat Dennis Andrews in the fourth. Like that rivalry's never dead. You know, you can ask him, what would you do if you had to sit next to Dennis Andrews on, on a bus? And he was like, yeah, I think we'd be fighting. And those guys fought over 30 years ago. These guys fight for that moment because they don't want to get to the end of their career and go, God, you guys did more than me, but I had more than you. So, you know, it's worth understanding that sometimes. So sometimes when we're, when we're happy for people, when you see boxers happy, it's part happiness and part relief. And that relief comes from the fact that they get to sit there at the table with the guys they came up with. So I just wanted to give that as, as just a bit of context to understand. The other thing I wanted to say was how happy I was for Mikel Lowell, and here's why. He got his first real, like, moment in boxing. Now, he's been known for being heavy-handed for a while, and he's done it on shows before, but this week has been the first week I've seen Sky Sports and Boxer, and there'd be a concerted effort to zero in on Mikel Lowell's knockout and make that a moment. And in doing that, it puts him over in the public mind. And these, these are the things you look for. So when you see the Young Azim brothers, who 
God knows how they make their weight. But when you see these guys getting their moments this early in their career, it's a reminder that actually, we talk about fights in boxing, but boxing's really about moments. The rumble in the jungle is about moments. You can pick the moments, right? In the documentary, what are the key moments? When George Foreman's putting holes in the bag, just putting dents in the bag that don't fill out. And you know that bag's full of sand, so they should. And they're almost too scared to fill back up. There's that moment. Then there's a knockout, right? It's just moments. The thrill in Manila, no one can tell me what happened in round six. But you remember the moment where Frazier can't go back out. Fight of the century, Ali versus Frazier. You remember the moment Ali gets put down. Mike Tyson, Trevor Burbick. I don't know what happened up until the point where Burbick gets put down, gets up, falls over, gets up, falls over. Boxing's really about moments. That's his beauty. It's about moments. That's why it lends itself to Instagram and YouTube because it's about those moments. And as a boxer, you try and create those moments. And it was good to see a broadcaster and a promoter capture those and understand that actually it's these moments that will define this man's career. So I really enjoyed that. And as you already know, I really enjoyed that show. I think if you're a young British boxer, you don't want to deviate too far from Sky. And here's why. A year from now, if the current DAZN model carries on as it is, a lot of these guys are going to be forgotten. You're just not going to see... You'll still see Joshua, and you'll still see Conor Ben, and you might still see Campbell Hatton. But I worry that guys like Okoli, Boatsy, um, Craig Richards... I worry that these guys will disappear from that kind of public consciousness and they'll only exist to the hardcore boxing fans. They won't, they'll lose that crossover access. But if I'm a boxer on the way up, especially if I'm a, a two or three fight novice, the next three years don't matter. I'm going to fight the same people, whether I'm on BT, Channel 5, DAZN, it doesn't matter. I'm fighting the same people because the budgets are broadly the same. Why wouldn't I put myself on Sky? and take the, the cross-promotional opportunities that offers. You know, I'm just watching the Champions League now, and there was a little bit about Yard and Arthur, and it's made me a bigger Lyndon Arthur fan, actually. And that's the importance of that kind of crossover programming, because I'm a, I'm a Lyndon Arthur fan. I was before, but I like him now as a character and a personality. I think you know, he's got that, that, that realness to him that we hadn't been able to see before. But I do say this, if you're a young boxer and you don't know where you should be and you're coming up to the end of your fight contract, maybe you've got one fight left, maybe you've got two fights left, you've got to get yourself on Sky. Especially now before they get the checkbook out. And at some point they will get the checkbook out. You want to be one of their go-to guys now. And that way you'll get looked after. The other thing I wanted to talk about, and this is just a question to the fans, because I posed this question over the weekend. What's the appetite for supercards? So my, my whole thing is, you charge the fans 60 quid. And for that 60 quid, you get six fights. Just six. No learning fights, no development fights, no WBA this, no WBA that. Literally fights that are too good for TV. Yeah. You can only do it once a year. Like WrestleMania. So if you look at the WWE model, you know 
Round about end of March, early April, they're going to do WrestleMania. And all the big guns come out. There are no developmental matches there. Yeah, we're, we're ending storylines. Things are getting concluded at WrestleMania. And that's what we need for boxing. Is that one point in the year where you pay your 60 quid, Sky pay-per-view, we get six bouts. And it's, it's just elite level. Start with the classic weight classes. All world title fights. And we pay the 60 quid. I think there's an appetite for that. I don't know if the rest of the boxing world agrees, but I do. I think there's an appetite for that. As opposed to what we get now, which is just you know, subpar and suboptimal. But no, no, let me know your thoughts on that one. DM me or whatever. But I think that would be interesting. Could we get away with doing those 60 quid supercards? Now I just want to touch on, on Crawford versus Porter. And I don't think you need me to go into 20 minutes worth of analysis of the fight. I thought the fight was, was incredible. I thought Crawford showed that he is the best welterweight in the division. And he also showed that he could solve the, the Sean Porter puzzle. And what I like about what Crawford did was it was so simple yet so effective. So if you remember the first round, he went to orthodox. And then you realize, actually, going orthodox against Sean Porter is hard. Because the way you'd normally try and angle off as an orthodox fighter, Porter covers all those exits off. That's why it's so hard to fight him as an orthodox fighter, because... Porter doesn't let you go side to side. You cannot go laterally against him. So Crawford has the presence of mind to go, well, if I go southpaw, I can always pivot out to my right, providing my foot placement's correct. And so from there, what Porter was able, not Porter, what Crawford was able to do was buy himself some space. But he was also smart. He left the grenades in the space. So if you notice, he'd always leave like an uppercut or a straight shot or a jab just in that space that Porter wanted to come into to let him know there's no free space here. And then he could just angle off to his right-hand side, make Porter reset, and in that time, catch him again. But it's not just his tactical brain that's brilliant. It's, it's how nasty he is. Right? You, can't, you can't coach that. If you saw the build-up documentary before and they were talking about Kenny Porter going head-to-head -head with Terence Crawford in, like, I think it's 2008, 2009, that lets you know the guy's mindset. He's, he's the definition of a savage in that he will, he will hurt you. And it's done with malice, but not with hate. You know, it's done to cause as much damage as possible, but I don't think anything that's done with hate is just business for him. But he's one of the best at that, that being able to turn on that nasty switch and make life miserable for you. So I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed watching him. I've enjoyed Crawford this week because it's a bit more of an animated Crawford. Crawford is now like, well, I've dealt with Porter, and he did. Now I'm going to come back to how he dealt with him. But he said, I dealt with Porter. I don't hear any more noise. After this, there's only one other person you want to see me fight. That's all. I can go home now. You guys let me know when the contracts are ready. But if we come back to Sean Porter, we've got to start asking some questions. 
So was that, was that the Sean Porter we're used to seeing? Everything about that was strange. You know, the post, in the post-fight discussion, you know, Kenny Porter was savaging his son publicly. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. He wasn't doing this, he wasn't doing that. I wasn't going to let him take a beating. It all felt to me a bit... It all felt a bit off. Because if you look at that second knockdown, Sean Porter's banging the ring canvas and he's like, I can't believe I got dropped by that. That's not someone who can't continue. So why did his old man jump up? That's not a guy who was in a bad way. It didn't look like he wouldn't see the fight out. Now, I don't know what the scorecards were. I don't know. I'll, I'll try and find them later. But why would, after building your career and doing the 12, why would you stop now? Why would your father stop you? And then in the press conference, for his father to then say, I was always going to stop the fight. Even before the first bell, I knew I was going to stop the fight. It sounds like someone trying to sabotage your career, doesn't it? Sabotage your reputation and your legacy. And I, I have no idea why. And we don't know what happened in that camp. We have absolutely no idea what happened in that camp. I think Sean Porter's doing a, his podcast to explain what happened. And we'll get to the truth. But for me, it felt a bit iffy. And I can see why people are annoyed and frustrated because you're not supposed to do that. We talked about this with, with Brooke and Golovkin. You're not supposed to stop the fight at the first sign of trouble. You just, it cheats the fans. Some people may have had bets on, it just cheated everybody out of a fight that could have been perfect. And now we're there going, well, what really happened? What's the rumor and the intrigue? And now Sean's retired. And it, he seemed emphatic and adamant that he was done. So how much work did he put into that final camp? Or was it just for the money? Take the money and go. I don't need any more money. This money will set me up now to do the things I want to do. Maybe that's what happened. And maybe that's why he fought the way he did. Because let's remember, Sean's been at that kind of level for a long time now. Just like Terence Crawford has. They've been there for a long time. And those camps take it out of you. And Sean's, what, 33, 34? Those camps take it out of you. That grind from amateur to pro, that takes it out of you. And he's been active. But that leaves a bad taste in the mouth because I'm one of those that, if you could have seen out the 12, I think you should have. And I think that would have been a good way for Sean Porter to go out. Now there's kind of a bit of a cloud over that. And it's a shame. Because it takes a little bit away from Terence Crawford, but rest assured, Terence Crawford could hang in any era. I wasn't sure because I had to see him in a benchmark fight. And I think I've said this numerous times. I had to see him in a benchmark welterweight fight to know what he could do. And I genuinely believe he stops Errol Spence. And if you say, what's the difference maker? It's that nastiness. It's that nastiness. That nastiness we saw in the United Kingdom back in 2009. When the, when the USA boxed an England squad. And in that England squad, 
was a young lad called Dudley O'Shaughnessy. And Dudley O'Shaughnessy was the blue-eyed boy of London boxing. And he was the son of Brian O'Shaughnessy, who just trained Dan Aziz to the British title. In another serendipitous link, the young man who would box Louis Arias at 75 kilograms was a young man called Josea Burton. And he was on the card that night, back in 2009. Keeping the boxer theme going, a young middleweight from the Northeast called Savannah Marshall was on there as well, as was a Future Sky commentator, was it commentatrix? No idea. Called Natasha Jonas. But that night, that was one of those nights where you knew you'd seen someone special, that Errol Spence was just different because you're not supposed to beat Dudley and not like that. So kudos to, to him for doing that. But when you go back and you look at these guys, they're from overlapping eras. Crawford and Spencer from overlapping eras. But the main difference is that nastiness. Spencer's all the skill and all the achievements and all the attainments. But when you're an Olympian, it's kind of handed to you and you're guided this way and that way. And you can't question the guys he's fought and the guys he's beaten. Crawford's just a different animal. We have conversations that say, what would Crawford have done against a prime Pacquiao and a prime Mayweather? And I say he would have been competitive. Would he have been outworked by a prime Pacquiao? Maybe. But he would have connected with a prime Pacquiao and I think he would have hurt him a few times. With a, with a prime Floyd, maybe that's a more thinking fight. No, but Floyd has to work for all 12. Nothing's going to be easy. And Crawford wouldn't be afraid to walk him down. He belongs in any era. You could imagine him in any era with a Duran. That's the highest respect I can pay him because, like I said, I was waiting for this benchmark fight. And then I just said, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is about Crawford. There's nothing amazing about him. But it's like everything he has is like eight and a half, nine out of ten. And then when you combine it, it's just superhuman. So what do you want to see Crawford do next? Can I be honest? I don't want to see him fight Spence next. I think Spence needs another fight. Maybe another two. I'd actually like to see Terence Crawford against Danny Garcia. Before people start groaning, here's why. You see what Porter did with the, you know, the kind of pressure style and aggressive ball rushing that's all well and good Crawford eats that up for fun what will happen with someone who like you know what Danny's like Danny's more about his timing minimize that risk strike when the eyes I mean Danny's a more considered and thinking fighter and they're from the same amateur era so it's not like they don't know each other that's a fight that would be easy to make. So I'd quite like to see that. I think that's a big fight. And then we build to the Spence fight because then we've got two benchmark opponents and we can say, mm, this Crawford guy's pretty special. And then we get to the Spence fight. And then afterwards, it's just a few cash out fights for these guys to make money, move up, do what they have to do. But I was really impressed with Crawford. I think Crawford is, I'll go, Crawford is, yeah. he's he, Crawford and Canelo are the guys right now when it comes to boxing. 
in terms of him leaving top rank, um, what's there for him at top rank? Nothing. I'd like to see him just sort of be a free agent but have that loose affiliation with Al. And let's just clean up and get some of this stuff out of the way, you know. Establish yourself as number one and then try one of these up-and-comers, be it Virgil Ortiz or Jerome Ennis. And then let's just see where we're at. But no, kudos to him. I think Bob Arum's lost one and it puts him in an odd position with Josh Taylor because then what do you do with Josh? I don't think Bob has much at 147 for Josh. So I don't... Yeah, it's tricky. That is really, really tricky. But trying to think, do we need to touch on anything else with Crawford? Probably not. Just great performance. Proved that he's number one or number two on the pound-for-pound pound list. Just skills and nastiness that don't even make sense. Like, as a British fan, it doesn't even make sense. But let's go back to what we always say. It's better to try and teach a dog how to fight than try to teach a fighter to be a dog. One is far easier than the other. I just want to close up by talking about John Fury. And now, I finally met John Fury, albeit for however long it takes to get into a lift, up a lift, and out of a lift. But yeah, what I saw on that kind of Jake Paul presser was, was horrific, cringeworthy. It was embarrassing. It was a terrible look for the sport. Now, if you remember... When Roy Keane kicked off on Patrick Vieira and there was a big deal about that and you can't really show that on screen or when Drogba started going mad in front of the camera, you know, when I think it was against Barcelona, Chelsea got robbed and they were like, oh my God, you can't have this. You can understand that because it's a TV company, you've got sponsors and you don't want to be associated with that sort of thing, right? So from what I understand, these guys hire a room God knows where, with some VC facilities for a press conference with Jake Paul. Now, this is BT, right? So you would have briefed everyone in the room, Jake Paul is looking to antagonize you. You can bite a little bit, but please don't go over the top. Don't put us in a position where we're going to have to justify actions here. Right? And I think Tommy kind of got the memo. Tyson got the memo. Big John Fury either got the memo and ripped it up or just didn't get the memo at all because he spoke like, how do you even describe his behavior on that? Everyone has those friends, right? You know that friend who, from when you were young, was always considered the class clown and always used to do stupid things because in their head they thought that's what made them popular. They thought that's why they had friends, because they did these things. I had a friend like that called Edward. So what Edward would do is he'd get drunk. So we're about, what, 17, 18? He'd get drunk and we'd be in a nightclub. And Ed would run around headbutting people in this nightclub. Yeah, He'd run up and go, hey, mate, what are you looking at? And the guy looked confused. And he just headbutt him and run off. Because he thought that's what people wanted him to do. So one day he headbutted the wrong guy. And the bouncers took him out the back. And the guy's mates were waiting for Ed. And poor old Ed 
got the absolute crap smashed out of him. My, we didn't know what had happened, so we had no idea. But they literally found the kid out the back, just laid out, bleeding. Because he headbutted the wrong guy. And like when you when you spoke to him and his older, his thing was, I thought that was the only reason you lot liked me, because I could go around headbutting people. And John Fury's a bit like that, where he's got this reputation for being a guy that just says whatever he wants and doesn't take a backward step and just whatever you can say, I'll say something worse, right? And he's run with it, even though he's got to be in his 50s now. He's just run with it like an 18-year-old Edward, nearly said his surname there, but you can't do that. It was embarrassing, it was cringeworthy. It was so bad that BT have pulled the video down, but here's the problem. In a digital age, everyone knew what a car crash that was, and I imagine about 50,000 people have probably saved that and gone, every so often we're going to have to wheel this out. I don't know if BT will, will ever escape that because that was terrible. It was terrible. And every time John spoke, you could see Tyson looking away. You could see Tommy looking away go, oh my God. And no one could rein him in. It was, it was terrible. It was, it was embarrassing for the sport. Like That's the reason boxing doesn't make money. That's the reason you will never get Rolex involved in boxing. That's the reason you'll never get Ferrari involved in boxing. That's the reason you won't even get Nat West involved in boxing. Because they see stuff like that and they go, this is too much like the Wild West. You wouldn't have that. You'd rarely get that in football. And you definitely wouldn't get that in football when there's been a press briefing beforehand. Did that give added spice to Fury versus Jake Paul? No, not really. That's a fight we already want to see because they'd done all the hard work. Let the fighters do the hard work. It didn't need John Fury inserting himself into that. It just didn't. And now people are going to look and go, but isn't this the guy that sits on the, the BT sofa with David Hay and everyone talking? So I don't expect it. I don't expect they'll have John Fury back in the BT studios after that. Because what they've realized very quickly is he cannot be trusted. Even in the most low level of tasks, he cannot be trusted to execute. And I just, I, I just watched the, some of the language, man. It was, you know, at a time when we're trying to encourage more kids and more women to engage with boxing, some of the language John Fury used, I mean, that's from like 30 years ago, man. It was terrible. And I don't want to hear any of this, I'm a fighting man, I'm this, I'm that, so I can do what I want, say what I want. It wasn't good. It just wasn't good. I I shouldn't have enjoyed watching it, but I kind of did in that sort of car crashy kind of way. But, you know, I'll, I'll be intrigued to see BT and Steve Bunce try and talk the way out of this one, but that was just bad. That's a head-in-the-hands moment for BT. And, Yeah. Go, go and watch it. If you can find the clips, even like on a Michael Benson tweet, just find the clips and see how terrible it was. I'm going to stop talking about it now because it, it, it doesn't make me feel good about the sport, to be honest. And actually, that's probably a good point to wrap up. Just want to say, if, any, if anyone watched the show that was streaming on Boxing Social, shame on you. You've embarrassed yourself, yeah? <laughs> Hang your heads in shame. How can you have a prospect show run by Wasserman Boxing? 
on Boxing Social. <laughs> oh my god. So what are they calling it? Like like the development series. And you got Harvey Horn. Like, why don't I just call it the last chance saloon? There are a lot of guys there who it's a shot to nothing for some people, I guess, but it's not the nah. Just don't waste your time. Don't don't look for no replays. Don't do anything. Just don't waste your time. You've got better things to do with your lives, guys. And on that note, I will sign off and say, take care and have a fantastic day. Okay, bye. <laughs>